This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest on this episode is Jeremy McGowan. Jeremy is a U.S. Air Force veteran, a researcher, and UFO experiencer. I first became aware of Jeremy when he appeared on Season 2, Episode 3 of Unidentified, America's UFO Investigation. The episode was titled UFOs vs. Nukes, and Jeremy shared details of his encounter with the UAP during the episode. Since then, Jeremy has become active on Twitter and shared more details of his experience on various podcasts. Jeremy and I connected on Twitter and exchanged several messages which resulted in a meeting over lunch and a long discussion about nukes, UFOs, and his experience in the military. We also talked about his relationship with members of TTSA and his plans to pursue his interests in the UFO phenomena. Fast forward about a month, I invited Jeremy to join me on Dead Hand Radio and talk about some of our shared interests and the timing could not have been better. This is one of the longest and most interesting conversations I've recorded and we covered a tremendous amount of information. There's a lot of new ground that Jeremy has never discussed before and we get philosophical about some of life's most intriguing mysteries. Jeremy is a fascinating individual and a rigorous investigator and I believe his contribution to the UFO community has only just begun. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. How are you doing today? Excellent. Excellent, my friend. I really appreciate you having me on today. Thank you. Hey, I'm glad to have you, man. i uh, got a couple of interesting questions to throw your way and I hope to hear a little bit more about your story. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on many things, but uh, have a little bit of experience in a lot of things. So let's see where this goes. Good. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't know how much you know about the podcast. It focuses primarily on the Cold War, its history, technology, science, culture, also how it affects our current day uh, situation and going into the future. So it covers a pretty broad spectrum of topics. I've touched on things that are of interest to you and um, your journey. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to have you come on here is because you've had experience with two of the, two of the things that are quite interesting to me, and that is nuclear weapons and UFOs. Uh, do you want to just give a brief overview? I know you've told your story several times, um, but people of listeners of this podcast might not have heard it in depth. So if, if you would just give a little brief introduction to your, your story and how it's led you to become publicly open and talking about this situation. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and like you said, I don't want to rehash all the minutia and all the, the small details of everything because it's readily available on, the, on multiple other podcasts and obviously on the, uh, the History Channel TV show, uh, Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation, where I appeared on uh, season two, episode three, and, uh, and discussed the, uh, the incident there. But, <clears throat> excuse me, in a nutshell, I was in the Air Force, uh, about a lifetime and 60 pounds ago. And uh, during that time, back in 1995, I was deployed 
to the country of Jordan. And uh, during my deployment, uh, it became fairly evident to me that I was being uh, used to guard uh, what I later determined to be a recovered, stolen uh, nuclear device uh, that had been pilfered from the, uh, the former Soviet states or the former Soviet uh, empire, which had uh, been fractured into multiple different uh, nation states uh, shortly prior to the incident. And during my time in guarding this, uh, this nuclear device, I was witness to a uh, rather astonishing event where I saw a, uh, well, let's just say I saw something in the sky that remains to this day, to me, completely and totally unexplainable. What are the other uh, podcast that you've appeared on and told your story just in case somebody wants to go hunt it down and hear more detail. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely appreciate that. And I'm sure they do as well. Um, it's neat how the, uh, the podcast creators are, are very intertwined with each other and, and help each other out. So that's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, the first podcast that I appeared on was with, uh, Andy and that was, uh, the, uh, the podcast that's entitled that UFO podcast. Oh yeah. Andy McGrillen. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. Good interviewer yeah, uh, too. Huh? Very good interviewer. Thick Scottish accent, but a, uh, a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then I was on Ryan Sprague's, uh, uh, somewhere in the skies podcast. Oh yeah. Ryan has an interesting podcast. He does a lot of experiencer interviews. He has a book yeah, out that, too that, that uh, he just recently republished. Mm-hmm. I have a copy of the book and, uh, and that podcast kind of centered more around on, like you said, uh, the experience and how things have changed uh, because of this experience and instead of the experience itself. And then last week I was on a, uh, a relatively brand new podcast entitled The Esoteric Book Club, uh, which just by title alone, you wouldn't assume that it is a podcast, but it is quite in fact uh, a, a very good one. And uh, the host of that one has aimed that podcast more towards the esoteric and occult and and enables the listener and the speakers to comfortably dive into areas that would seem a little bit woo-woo for most folks. But uh, he does it in a way that allows people to express ideas and, and uh, events in alternative uh, explanations. Yeah, that could be a very, I, I did listen to that episode. Um, you mentioned it on your uh, Twitter feed a couple, um, several days ago. I'm not sure exactly when, but I mm-hmm. I listened to it and um, it was interesting. It gave you, like you said, it gives you room to explore some of the speculative areas of these type of experiences. And that could always be uh, very healing for somebody who is, has gone through an experience that they don't quite understand. Uh, so yeah, that, that podcast, uh, you know, hopefully it'll stick around and be available for additional guests to come on there and, and, uh, share their experience. Yeah. And, and it's, it's easy to find too. It's the esoteric book club.org.org. So shout, shout out to those guys. It's also on any podcast platform. It's hosted at Podbean, I believe. And they um, allow that platform allows podcasters to share their, their uh, recordings across every platform imaginable. So 
Uh, yeah, good. All, all three of those podcasts are excellent um, to listen to. I recommend anybody go check them out and hear your story in particular to get more in depth. And, um, but also just uh, to hear other people's experiences and, and other stories by those uh, that those podcasters are bringing to the light. So your your uh, story starts in, in 1995, but prior to 95, you were in the military. Do you want to talk a little bit about that leading up to your experience? Uh, yeah, I uh, I joined in uh, 1990 and uh, was going through basic training and technical school and, and all of that uh, at the same time that the Soviet empire was in the process of falling apart. And it was a very, very tumultuous time uh, looking back in the history books. I I don't know that I realized the significance of that time period uh, personally or not, but uh, you had arguably the, uh, the most powerful nation state in, in the world uh, basically crumble and fall to the ground. And, uh, there was a lot of buildup of uh, our military. There was a lot of increased training, although I didn't realize that the training that I was going through was different than the training that had uh, been previously uh, done just due to world circumstances and and things like that. But uh, even in basic training, uh, they were teaching us about uh, guarding nuclear assets and what they called at that time priority a assets and and things that i don't think uh many basic training uh cadets would have uh would have been exposed to so it was a it was an interesting time period in history with uh with the end of the cold war coming through in in a very well let me backtrack and say the official end of the cold war uh in, in a very uh, tumultuous uh, fall and, and crash. I, uh, I honestly don't think the Cold War is over. A lot of people are uh, bringing that up on this podcast. And I think um, I, I go with the, the idea that Cold War 2.0 is well underway. I, don't, I think there was a period of time where we experienced um, – a lowering of tensions almost to the point where we didn't have to worry. It was almost like a, a gilded age between 91 and early two thousands. Um, maybe even, maybe even up right up to the, uh, nine 11 in 2001. And then things yeah, started to really go downhill. There were, there was a time period where you could almost imagine Reagan and Gorbachev sitting down at a family dinner table and swapping jokes between each other. Um, and, and it's, it seemed to be a, a time period where people could lean back and, and take a breath and not have to worry about the world being on fire. And that lasted about a day and a half. You know, we're, I think we're, we're worse off now than, than we were prior to that. Well, times are still, uh, certainly ramping up things, things, tensions are certainly ramping up across the globe. Um, there, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into modern day, uh, sociopolitical issues. Uh, but like you said, and you know, I agree that 
the Cold War is in a new phase, if not a second Cold War. Um, that said, going back to 1990, uh, and we're looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union, as you mentioned. At that time, I did some statistic, statistical research just to see where we were at back then in uh, terms of numbers of nuclear weapons available. Sure. Because uh, what we're going to talk about moving forward is going to you know, is going to rely heavily on these kind of statistics. Now, in 1990, the U.S. had 10,904 nuclear weapons worldwide. The Soviet Union had over three times that amount at 37,000. They also had within their controlled states, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, mm-hmm. Belarus, and I think Lithuania was part of Ukraine. Uh, USSR at that time. I believe so. I, yeah. I honestly don't remember. Uh, an additional 3,500 nukes. So well over 40,000, uh, you know, close to 45,000 nukes in the Soviet Union. Well, not inside the Soviet Union. They had them positioned strategically around the globe, but they had control right. of almost 45,000 nukes. Sure. And overnight that uh that empire disintegrated so it is almost without a doubt can be said that some of those nukes most likely fell into the hands of people that don't don't need to have them and don't really know what to do with them oh for sure i mean there's there is a official congressional testimony by John Deutsch, who back in the, in the uh, early and in, in mid-90s was the uh, deputy director of central intelligence. And there is direct testimony by John saying that they had received well over a hundred reports alleging the diversion of nuclear wet warheads or components during the previous few years. So he he, this was a statement by him in 1996, and the previous few years was when the Soviet Empire was was falling apart or had fallen apart, and that at that time is well over a hundred reports of diversions of nuclear warheads. So it's it's not just idle speculation based on statistics or or based on assumptive statistics. It is. It is direct proof in congressional testimony by the director of central intelligence that this has happened. Right. And with the uh, amount of conflicts that broke, broke out after the collapse of the Soviet Union and those countries being in conflict, civil wars, basically, uh, being in control of those nuclear weapons, there's no way to even account for everything that, um, was uh, that could have been misappropriated. No, for sure. And, and people don't understand that you don't need hundreds of pounds of raw material to create nuclear weapons. It's, it's, we're talking in grams, things that can be secreted in, in lead-lined shoes based on, you know, old cartoons from the man from uncle or, or what have you. It's, it's very, very small amounts of material. I mean, we know for a fact that 
back in, uh, I believe it was 94, 95, the German police seized about six grams of plutonium. Uh, and uh, as well as, a, I think it was a gram sample of enriched uranium. And, you know, these are things that you can hide them in, in a melted candle. You could, you could hide them in the bottom of a coffee cup. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be the courier for that. Um, you're probably not going to make it out. But these are, these are small, uh, small footprint uh, uh, containers. Right. And, yeah, as you said, it doesn't take a lot of material. It does take some high-tech equipment to be able to process that material into a weapon. Uh, which means that more than likely these uh, these weapons would have to be procured by a nation state in order to be weaponized. Oh yeah, Iraq, North Korea, uh, any any country that had you know since the the late 1970s expressed an interest or desire to create a nuclear program. Obviously, uh, I'm, I'm sure they would have come out and said that it is under the guise of nuclear energy. But uh, I think everybody is is cognizant of the fact that that's not their their final aim. So any of the yeah any of these nation states that would have lobbied the United Nations for access to nuclear uh, uh, centrifuges to ramp up their energy production is fully capable of taking those six grams of uh, plutonium and converting it into fissile material. Yeah, very alarming. And some of it's still unaccounted for. Oh, there, there's a tremendous amount of unaccounted for. I mean, just in the United States alone, uh, and if we want to talk about actual fully functioning nuclear devices, we've lost ourselves. Our own country has lost eight functioning nuclear devices. I mean, just simply lost them. That's... Uh... Yeah, that's, I, I, I tried to do some research on that, and um, the best I can do is uh, say that the majority of those, or actually all of those nukes that were lost were by accident. They weren't stolen. They were simply a plane yeah. crashed, and the, the missile or not the missile, but the uh, the bombs that the plane was carrying in some cases was never recovered. Yeah, m most of these were never. The only one out of those eight, the only one that really stuck in my head as one that may not have been technically, quote unquote, lost, but may have been a defection, may have been an actual, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? an actual taking of the device by a foreign state was back in, I believe it was 1956 when we lost a B-47 and there was a, I believe there was two nuclear weapon cores that were being flown out of MacDill Air Force Base and the entire aircraft, the crew, the two cores, uh, they just, they disappeared. Uh, we, ne we never, we never found the wreckage. We never found the nuclear cores, uh, never heard from any of the crew. Um, and it's just gone. And I believe that the, those two cores had roughly a, a combined yield of close to about four megatons. Um, but there was, there was zero evidence ever found of that flight 
after they took off, they just gone. I hadn't even heard of that incident. Yep. It's, uh, and that was, that was two devices on that aircraft. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to read up on that. Cause yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, and that was in the early days of the, uh, the cold war yeah 1956 but uh but yeah that they just literally and figuratively disappeared that's interesting man wow uh so have you read up on that um in any detail as as to where that might have landed no uh the all the speculation that i can find on that one is that <laughs> It, and, and this kind of goes into the woo-woo side of life, but they were flying out of MacDill to an overseas airbase, which was most likely uh, the, the Bimini Atoll. Uh, they're, you know, they're obviously passing through the Bermuda Triangle. They, they hit 14,500 feet, go into a cloud bank, and they fall off radar. They're, they're gone. They're not heard from. There's no mayday. There's nothing. They just did not come out the other side of that cloud bank. Wow. Well, so were they on a um, bombing test? Were they, were they about to drop those nukes in the atoll? Because they were doing testing at that, around that time still. I don't know. All I can find is they were heading from McDill to a quote-unquote overseas airbase. It's just my uh, assumption that it would have been the atoll that they were heading to. Oh, okay. Where's McDill located? Uh, South Florida. Oh, okay. So, and the crew of how many people? I don't know how many crew was on the plane. Well, two pilots, a bombardier, and probably a navigator, maybe four. I, I would assume, and, and, and maybe, maybe some techs that would have been uh, mm -hmm. handling the core. Now, even though that there's been no official statement about the, the type of devices, the... Uh, the only real types of cores that we had back in 1956 was the Mark 15. So if you take two Mark 15s and put them together, that's where I'm coming up with about four megaton yield. Oh, okay. Uh, so they were two separate devices though. Two Not, separate cores. Combined. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't even know if they were fully functional uh, warheads. I believe my research is, is showing me that these were just the, 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 the fissile core material without the ability to uh, go critical. It was just literally the cores themselves being transported probably to an area that had the, the rest of the equipment and the rest of the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, processes necessary to create a, a functioning nuclear weapon. So here's a question that you may not have an answer to, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Sure. What could cause a plane to go off radar at that altitude? <clears throat> Speculation by myself. Um, a pilot could easily turn off their transponder. Uh, they could fly into Cuba and be rewarded with, accolades from the Soviet empire for, uh, you know, defection, uh, they could crash. They, they could, uh, the end, you know, the pilot and the co-pilot or the pilot against the will of the co-pilot could, 
could have a, a, a moment of, of mental instability and say, what the hell am I doing carrying nuclear devices and nosedive into the ocean? Um, there, there's a lot of things. I mean, if, if you want to go, if you want to go on the conspiracy thought side of it uh, and, and look back at the, the history of what we talked about at the, uh, the onset of the show is the, uh, the interest level between potential UAPs and nuclear devices. Uh, it, it may have just been pulled out of the air. That's certainly a possibility. Could, did um, ground to air missiles capabilities exist at that time? I, I don't, I don't know. Um, we had ground to air. I don't know what their tracking capabilities were. I don't know how, what the ranges were. And if they had left the coast of Florida and they were, you know, 60, 80 miles off coast, I don't know what the range of those missiles would have been. And, and I don't believe that, that we would have had anything land-based in, in the Southern Everglades. Uh, Cuba may have had something uh, donated quote unquote from, from Russia um, or there could have been a, 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 a naval launch of a, uh, you know, sea to air type of, uh, type of missile. But I have, I have no idea other than just pure speculation on that. Yeah. You know what, after I asked that question, I, I remembered there was, uh, ground to air capabilities that existed at that time. So it potentially could have been shot down. Um, but even if it was, well, if it was shot down over the ocean, uh, it's quite possible that there are no remains to be found. You know, everything's at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of water out there. So, and and if we drift over to the um, the area of weird, which I often like to go, um, as you said, there has been, and it's it's well documented um, that there's been an interest between UFOs and nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, nuclear power plants. Oh, for sure. For sure. And just, just to touch on it, I mean, I don't know how much uh, your listeners are, are involved with, with that side of, uh, of the world, but just on the TV show that I was on, there was a, uh, an entire episode discussing the relationship between UFOs and nukes. And then the episode that I was featured on was literally titled uh, "Nukes or UFOs versus Nukes," and both episodes are talking. And throughout the, the the theme of the show is talking about the relationship between unidentified aerial phenomena sightings and the proximity of nuclear devices. Uh, everything from field, you know, nuclear. Uh, uh, systems in Minot and North Dakota, South Dakota, to the incident, the now very famous incident that happened on the USS Nimitz, which is obviously a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, uh, which was, you know, witnessed by the Spy-1 radar on the USS Princeton, uh, to the incident that I had in Jordan, which was everything except completely provable <clears throat> that the crate that I was guarding contained a recovered nuclear warhead inside of it. So all of these incidents are directly relating or directly corresponding to witnessing events that are unexplained aerial phenomena. There's very little doubt that the, um, the phenomena has an interest in our 
nuclear capabilities around the world. There, there was um, there was a, a a study done by George Knapp, uh, who I'm sure you're aware of his work. Um, he he went into Russia and, and spoke with people in the Russian military about their um, encounters with the the UFO phenomena, and was able to actually bring out of the um, bring out of Russia uh, documentation about those about several of the incidents they've had um, between UFOs and their nuclear facilities. So it's it's not just the U.S. and uh, having these kind of encounters. It's global. Yeah, it it is truly a, a, a global event. And if if a season three of that show comes out uh, uh, on the History Channel, I believe they're going to take it to a global scale. They hinted at it a little bit at the end of season two, where they were going into uh, South America and, and once into Italy and uh, and discussing the processes with government officials and, and witnesses in those countries. But they haven't really... Uh, other than touching on the Rendlesham incident, they haven't really gone into uh, the European Union or uh, Eastern Europe or anything like that. But uh, I, I expect that to to occur soon. And I know I know that Japan has just signed an agreement with the United States to jointly study uh, the UAP phenomena. Yeah, yeah, that was encouraging. And I think that's the only way that we can have any kind of uh, and put any kind of answer to this question is through a global effort, everybody working together to figure out what this thing is. Yeah. And this encourages me more than anything else, because it is virtually impossible for anything more than one person to keep a secret. If two people know it, it's no longer going to be a secret. Uh, now, granted, the United States government has done a wonderful job of covering up or providing disinformation or confusion and, and preventing people from understanding what the actual truth is. But if there is work, collaborative work between Japan and the U.S. and then eventually uh, Britain and the U.S. Uh, on, on studying this phenomena, this just opens up the potential for verifiable leaks to come out. And I think that's where the majority of the rest of the world's information and understanding of this process of disclosure is going to happen. It's not going to be from uh, direct statements. It's going to be either from authorized leaks or unauthorized leaks that contain uh, irrefutable data, irrefutable evidence of, of this process happening. That's possible. I, I, I think at some point, sooner or later a, a world leader is going to have to come out and say this is what we have this is what we know and you know this is where we're going from here i i, I just there there has to be a point where you know you have this grassroots effort which is like what you're talking about where we as a people um have a disclosure which is already speculated to be well underway yes have a disclosure effort where you've got uh, I guess they call them whistleblowers that are coming out and 
saying, and this has been going on for decades. Well, ever since the beginning of the uh, Roswell incident, this has been going on. Um, but I'm, I'm reading this book, AD After Disclosure. Yeah, and familiar with it. Yeah, okay. If uh, if you haven't read it, read it. I I highly recommend it. Um, I, I'm such a slow reader. I'm only on like chapter three or something like that. <laughs> but uh, but it's a it, it, it's a, exactly what we're talking about. That a global leader uh, comes out and discloses what the government knows and. Um, they just they they don't have all the answers. Even if they even if they have the the craft, you know they don't know how how it works. They, there's so many unanswered questions that it has to be put forward to the global community to be able to answer things. These things. Yeah, it's basically crowdsourcing information. Right. You know, it's 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 interesting that they they come to that conclusion. And just a little bit of history on on where I'm at. Until I was on that show. Uh, and I didn't even go on the show to really tell the story. I, I went on the show to see if I could use their resources to track down the person that was with me on that deployment that saw it when I saw it, because I wanted to validate, uh, my personal memory. But ever since I went on that show, I've started kind of going down this rabbit hole of information seeking and trying to understand. And I've, I've been, in constant contact with Lou Elizondo, with Sean Cahill. I've spoken with Kevin Day. Um, you know, I've, I've exchanged uh, emails with, with some other folks that are, that uh, you don't want to be identified uh, yet. But based on all of my conversations, reading between the lines, uh, getting information from other sources that validate what some of these folks have been telling me, it seems to be pointing to the idea that, and this, this is where the woo-woo gets a little bit strange to, to talk about, but it, it seems to be that we, and I don't, I have to say that I don't know if we means the United States, if it means a coalition of countries, or if it means a faction of us inside the United States without the knowledge of the rest of it. I, I don't know, but it seems as if we understand who is in the saucers, who is in the black triangles and has absolutely no idea who is in the Tic Tacs. <laughs> and it's <laughs> really, yeah. And it seems as if the black triangles are a collaborative effort between us and quote unquote them. The others. That, that, that's a term that I've been seeing lately a lot. Yeah, it, it seems like the Black Triangles is terrestrial technology that was developed through reverse engineering and that we have actual human pilots in the Black Triangles. Um, but it's developed with assistance through a, a collaborative effort of some sort. And it's, it's odd to say that it feels super weird to say that I'm not even comfortable saying it, but I think that there is enough outside sources that folks could, could come to the same conclusions and find out that that information, those statements and, and the validity of those statements are being said by people that are for the most part beyond reproach in their credentials and their 
exposure to this, this idea. The only question is, are they willing to go on record and state those facts? I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've never, I've never asked the folks that I'm in contact with to do that. Uh, I feel that it's not my place to push or pull them in any sort of specific direction. And they've been doing this a whole lot longer than I have. Uh, I, I think that they probably will say things when they are personally good and ready to say them. Um, and if I had absolutely unquestionable verified information to prove what I'm saying, I'd probably shut the hell up and not say anything about it. <laughs> uh, well, that would be a tragedy because the information needs to come out. And even if it's unverified, well, unverified and undocumented information, I have no problem talking about because people have the right to choose what they want to believe and what they want to hear and what they want to see. But if, if, if I woke up tomorrow and there was a blue binder sitting on my nightstand that undeniably proved the existence of extraterrestrials or, or non-human entities, and their involvement in humanity over the ages, if I had that proof in my hand, I am not the person to show that to the world. I would inevitably do it incorrectly, and I don't want to be responsible for people jumping off of bridges. Uh, you know, I've often been um, pretty, pretty skeptical of that scenario that people would you know, be so traumatized by the admission that we're being visited that they would just give up all hope, commit suicide, go into complete um, primitive mode and destroy civilization. I've always been skeptical of that, but the more I look into this and the more I realize how uh, easily influenced human beings can be, it seems probable to me that that actually could happen. Oh, well, it, it could happen on both sides of the argument. I can't remember what the name of the cult was, but you had that group of folks that, that uh, back when Haley's Comet came through, I think Heaven's it was in the Gate. late... Heaven's Gate, yes, thank you. You know, they all dressed in purple robes with Nike tennis shoes and killed themselves because they thought that by dying at that moment, their consciousness would be transported to a passing by UFO. So if, if disclosure comes out and, and proves this existence and it doesn't say anything else, it just proves the existence thereof, then people are going to fill in the blanks and they're going to say they're going to be ascribing uh, human characteristics and human traits and human behaviors to something that is definitively not human and they're going to be wrong and they're going to take actions that are in contravention to the, the you know, their best uh, their best processes for longevity and health. So I don't want to be that guy that, that creates the next heaven's gate. Well, maybe that is one of the, um, the reasons that no administration to date has come forward and, and put out this information. There's a couple of other theories that I tend to go along with, but it's possible that not, not just one, there's not just one reason, um, there are a multitude of reasons why the disclosure effort has gone, you know, it, it's come to the fore 
several times throughout uh, throughout the history of the the phenomena, but it's always been pushed back down for some reason. Yeah, and it's interesting you say pushed back down. I I think that not only the the process of disclosure has been pushed back down, but I also think that humanity in general has has come to the pinnacle of existence a few times in the past and, and we've been knocked down a few notches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately my, my opinion of the progress of humanity has always been a forward and an upward trend, even though we've had setbacks, I think we've always come out the other side uh, after those setbacks and been stronger for it. I'm a firm believer in the, the, the um, phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And we've come yeah. to the brink several times in, in our history. And we've always stepped back away from that brink and been stronger for it. So I have hope. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a, a positive person. I do have a pessimistic side, but for the most part, I'm an optimist. Yeah, I, I consider myself a, a pragmatist with a touch of realism. Um, so, <laughs> Wait, man, isn't, yeah. that, isn't that like saying <laughs> I'm positive and positive? <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, I am, I am extremely cautiously optimistic. I, I can't go through life thinking that it's all for naught. Yeah. You know, there's, right. there's a reason. There's a reason that we're here. There's a reason that we're doing the things that we're doing as a species. And I'm, I'm seriously hoping that I live long enough to understand what that is. And whether that's through a conscious obtainment of, of understanding, or if that is an unconscious obtainment of that same understanding, I, I'm not there yet. I don't know. I think the reason for existence on earth for humans is an interesting idea. Uh, but uh, so the question is, why are we here? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's mostly unanswered, but I think it could be boiled down to um, that answer has to be your own answer. Well, you know, why do you think you're here? And I think for most people to be able to, um, to continue going forward, the reason you're here is to make a difference to do something that is going to impact your little piece of, of the world. Cause you're only here for a short time. Most people don't have the opportunity to, to make world changing decisions. Um, but you do have the opportunity to make decisions within your own circle of friends, family, associates, coworkers, you know, people that, that you're close to. And if you do it in a positive way and try to make a difference, then that's the reason that we're here. At least that's my opinion. You know, I, <clears throat> earlier I said I wasn't going to talk about folks that I had been speaking with, but in this regard, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to Sean Cahill. And for your listeners that don't know who Sean Cahill was, he was, he was one of the people is I'm right sorry, is is yeah yes, is yeah um he he is one of the people that was very instrumental in the dissemination of the information that came off the uh uss nimitz and uss princeton and he was featured on on a couple episodes of uh of the show on the history channel and 
Sean and I are becoming uh, uh, very good friends. Uh, we, we talk on multiple times a week, but Sean, Sean has opened my eyes to multiple possibilities of the, basically, I feel like I'm quoting, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. Uh, but, but that is literally what this comes down to be is the understanding and the idea that unconscious actions and, and thought can affect consciousness. It can affect outcomes. It can manifest destinies and, and can, can manifest uh, different types of existence. And, and he's, he's in the process of a personal journey uh, much, much further along than I am in being able to come to personal realizations. And he's pointed me in the directions of, of some ancient texts and ancient scriptures, which kind of tend to back up uh, this idea that, uh, that consciousness is tied into the unidentified aerial phenomena. And it's not necessarily a, a corporeal type of, of thing. It is, it is a meeting, a pairing, a mixing of collective humanity's consciousness with with something else you you mentioned like corporeal which right. could also be equated to the nuts and bolts theory right yes yeah where it's a physical craft and and there are beings that are controlling that craft uh that's the the idea that i've always uh, subscribed to well it's it's easy to think of it in, in that aspect simply because we live in a three-dimensional world. We can reach out and we can touch our coffee cup. We can, we can pet our dog. You know, we can see, taste, touch, smell, and, and feel. So <clears throat> the idea of a tangible craft that was created by a civilization, you know, X number of light years away that is physically traveling through the universe, we can swallow that. We, we can get behind that because we have boats that travel the ocean. We have rockets that go to Mars. We, we are in the infancy of that projection of an idea. But when it comes to trying to get our heads around the idea of a parallel universe and a, and a, uh, a, a version of humanity in the parallel universe that has developed technology that can that can move between the universes or even a non-human uh, species that can, that can do all sorts of things in that respect, that's when the brain starts shutting down. Well, not, not so much for me. That part is still, uh, I, I can still kind of get my mind around that because the alternate universes, the multidimensional aspects is is not so far away from what i've read in the past but what is what has recently been discussed within some circles and it's not a new idea this is this is an idea that's been around probably for decades but people are starting to talk about these things that are not they 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 are physical but they, they're created by the consciousness or group consciousness uh, that is that is observing them. So it's like you 
you want to see it. So you actually create it with your mind. And that's yeah. what I'm having trouble. That's what I'm having trouble getting my mind around. Yeah. It's an episode of Star Trek. Exactly. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's wild, wild conjecture and wild speculation, but it has, it has merit if you take consciousness and you apply it to quantum physics. See, and and the, it, the thing that, the thing that really is kind of mind blowing is that it's not just, uh, it's not just somebody imagining it or a, what is it called when, you know, you have a group uh, of people hallucination. It's not just that because these things are being captured on video and radar. Right. So you get that physical, yeah, video, that physical video evidence. Don't hallucinate. Exactly. Exactly. That's my point. So how is it you're manifesting these physical objects by just thinking about it? There is there a technology that can read your thoughts and project or, or it wouldn't even be a projection. It would be an actual, uh, 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 you know, when something appears, uh, it's, it's a manifestation manifestation. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the thing that these thought, guys are talking about that just kind of out there blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's bizarre to think about it, but if you apply the ideas of, of quantum physics to the idea that consciousness is, is a thing. And by a thing, I mean a singular thing and that each and every person on this planet is part of the same consciousness. So it's like and, a river. It's like a river that we all can walk up to and drink out of. Yes and no. It's almost like the, it's, it's a river, but we're all part of that river. We're all individual droplets in that giant river. And once humanity gets to a point, this is the idea. This is not necessarily what I subscribe to. But once humanity gets to the point where as individual droplets, we realize that we are part of that larger river, then everything changes for humanity that our consciousness coalesces into one. And this, this is the idea between this idea and, and quantum physics, this idea and ancient texts, and this idea and, and uh, even in Christianity where, where we are seeing uh, things in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the ancient Hindu texts and stuff that, that tell us that we are godlike or we are created in the image of God or that God is within all of us. It goes back to the idea that quantum entanglement, what we think in our consciousness affects the universe and that we are all tied together, that each one of us is part of the person standing beside us in, in, an, in a conscious, conscious manner. And it is the merging of science and religion and the the process of disclosure. It's all coming together at the same time, man. It's, it's weird. And I don't have the answers. I don't have the understanding. And, and by and large, for the most part, I'm simply regurgitating the thoughts and ideas that much deeper thinkers than I have, have given to me. For a generation. I mean, going back, like you said, back to ancient texts, Oh, those, those ideas were now uh, it brings me back to um, something I started to say earlier about 
the reason that we're being here that you know the reason for us our existence and that's a question that we can ponder and think about and you know spend endless hours on trying to figure out but it's not a disturbing answer that the answer doesn't you know doesn't twist your brain up you can come up with a tangible answer but the question of why are the others here that's a mm. question that may not ever be answered i mean you you said that there's possibly some cooperation going on between the military or the the military industrial complex and the others but what is their agenda why are they even bothering to come here you know that's a because, question that i don't know if it's answerable well i think it's because they're us from the future no no they're just they're just us they're i <laughs> wow okay so you're going to you're going to have me formulate this one um the uh the idea that the black triangles are in collaboration with a certain faction of of our military industrial complex you know the the door behind the door behind the door um and i don't think it's just the united states i think that this is on a on a global level to a to a point every type of degree imaginable um the the prevailing thought on that one is that we ourselves are the aliens we're not we weren't supposed to evolve on this planet. We were we were seated here. We were put oh, here. We I see what you mean. Okay, so like the ancient alien, kind of where they seated us, left yeah. us to evolve, and now they're we, coming back to check on us. That yeah, we're we idea. are okay. a child. We are a child of another race that uh, that they literally put us here. We're the sea monkeys that were flushed down the toilet. Yeah. Mm, okay, yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that theory. But why, and, and, why come back now? And why so much interest in the nukes? Well, all right. So <laughs> going away from that theory for a moment, okay. that, that we are them or they are us. Let's say that another species that existed came through and they are a multi, multi millennial type of generational existence they they travel across the known universe uh doing whatever it is that they do and they come across planets and they come across uh, uh habitable zones and maybe they send out uh probes to begin with which is exactly what we do we don't go anywhere that we haven't sent a probe to first and these probes carry uh DNA, it carries the ability to create life in conditions that life can exist. So that when their civilization gets to that same point, a few hundred thousand years after that probe is sent, then there is a workforce. There is the potential for recruitment. There is a potential to continue a biologic line. There is just plain potential. They seed and then they follow up a few million light years later um, or a few million years later. But with the nukes, maybe they came through, maybe their probes dropped off and, and spurned evolution and, and or, or spawned evolution and, and created that 
missing link that we've never discovered. And in all of other history throughout the universe, uh, we, we meaning their, their, uh, their output has never gotten to where we are. And now this species comes by and they're like, Hey, we're, we're here to pick up our sea monkeys and, and, uh, increase our, our biologic line or maintain our biology or whatever. Oh my God, they've, they've developed a weapon that can destroy their own planet. We're going to have to stick around and study this. It may, maybe we're the first ones to do that. That was my thought. Actually, I had, uh, I had thought about this question quite a few times before we talked today. And yeah, I think, um, I think it is a technology that they may not have developed for because they never had a need for it. They're not a warring society. Um, they're not uh, bent on destruction and um, conquering other races. They are simply scientists, explorers that are, that are interested in learning about the, the, the real answers of the universe. And they found their way here, whether they seeded us prior to or not, they found their way here to this lonely little blue planet in the middle of, you know, a, a billion stars galaxy. And they decided to stay for a little while and see what we're up to. And here's this ultimate weapon of mass destruction. And what the heck is it? Hey, we could turn yeah. it on and turn it off. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's documented evidence of them being able to shut down entire missile silo facilities. Yeah, yeah. Documented. You know, it's 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 crazy. And and honestly, I think that that our speculation on their behavior will never be correct because we are we are limited in our thought processes to that of ascribing human traits and human behavior to something that is inevitably not human, unless potentially it is and, and we are them. But, but even then, the, the gap on uh, social maturity is going to change the way that they approach the universe versus the way that we approach the universe. So anything that we think is the reason that they're behaving the way that they are is going to be inevitably wrong until they themselves tell us why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring this back down to our human existence a, a little bit and get back to the, the, um, where we started out on this and we were talking about nukes being proliferated or are um, stolen uh, from the former Soviet Union and your experience with guarding a nuke in the middle of the Jordanian desert. Um, now, do you have any, I mean, besides, you know, during your research, you've come up with some evidence to support your, your theory, but do you have any idea where the nuke came from? <clears throat> I have an idea. I mean, this is okay. This is the Jordanian desert. And basically at that time frame, at that, time in, in, in our history with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the proximity of, the, of Jordan to the Soviet Union, I have no doubt that what was in the crate 
that I was responsible for the security of was a nuclear device that came out of what was then one of the external states that had formed during the collapse of the Soviet empire. Um, so going back to, I, I believe I mentioned John Deutsch uh, early on in this conversation, in congressional te testimony, uh, John Deutsch has stated that, and this is in one of his speeches from 1996, and he is talking about a incident that happened the year previous, which would have been 95, which would have been exactly when I was in Jordan. He is stating that Jordanian authorities had intercepted a, uh, a shipment of Russian-produced missile guidance instruments that were bound for Iraq. Now, I have no doubt that what was in the crate is exactly what he's talking about, but I also highly uh, disagree with the fact that it was limited to uh, Russian-produced missile guidance instruments. I, I am personally convinced that it was a nuclear warhead that had been recovered that was also bound for Iraq, maybe in conjunction with missile guidance systems and components. But I was there. That, that crate was the size. You could park a VW bug inside this crate. And, you know, the, the command and control that was there told me, don't get near it. Don't let anybody else get near it. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm in my early twenties. I'm working night shift in the middle of the desert. And I'm, I think I was a senior airman at the time, very low ranking and, and didn't really care much about much at the time. Um, but we don't do exactly what we're told to do. So I stood on the crate. I sat on the crate. I laid down on the crate. Hell, I pissed on the crate. And, uh, about nine years ago, I was diagnosed with a very specific type of skin cancer on my inner thigh that is only caused by exposure to radiation. And <laughs> I, I am not a nude sunbather, man. I, <laughs> the, only, the only radiation that that area has ever been exposed to is when I was sitting on or peeing on that crate. And guidance systems themselves they're not radioactive. The warheads are. Yeah, they're not even close to the missile or the warhead. No, the guidance system's not even close to the warhead. They're not. And through my through my ideas and conjecture and 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 personal research, if you're going to steal a warhead, you don't want the whole nose cone. You're you're after the operational, the functional parts of this thing. You're after the core. You're after the components that cause it to go critical. And you're after the guidance systems to be able to, to, to mount this thing and weaponize it. Mm -hmm. You are going to dump the shielding. You're going to dump the, 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 the nose cone skin. You're going to dump everything that creates weight because you're going to be in a very nondescript vehicle crossing the Middle Eastern desert uh, going, you know, probably hell across Mongolia uh, or, or any of these open barren territories in a vehicle that doesn't have much fuel. So you're going to save as much weight as you possibly can. And that by stripping it, you're going to increase the isotopic signature, the exposure to radiation, because there's no more shielding because you dumped it to save weight. So this does two things. This goes back and proves my point that I was exposed to radiation. Therefore, I think that it was a nuclear device inside that crate. And the fact that without the shielding, there's more of a chance for the phenomena to be able to see or identify or track 
this device as it goes across the desert. Um, it almost seems like it would have come through Iran and Iraq to get to Jordan. If it was coming from Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan, um, one of those countries, uh, you know, in that part of the USSR. If it, was, if it was coming from Ukraine, it would have come through Turkey and possibly through Syria um, to end up in Jordan. But it just seems like a strange place for it to end up in Jordan. Well, if you think, if you think about our, our allies and our treaty positions back in 1995, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of friends in that area. We didn't have a lot of treaties in existence in that area back in 1995. Jordan was as close as to a, uh, a, a personable contact with the United States as we could have gotten. So we may have done a recovery effort. And I'm, this is just speculation. We may have done a recovery effort inside of a slightly more hostile force and then moved this device uh, to the Jordanian desert while we decided what the hell we do with it. But according to the, um, the uh, was it a speech that uh, Deutsch was giving? Was it a? Oh, it was, it was testimony before, the, yeah, the, the actual title of this was testimony before the permanent subcommittee on investigations of the Senate Committee on Governor, Government Affairs by the DCI. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's the so title he, of the document. He, he was speaking before Congress. And yes. he gave this announcement, but he said that the Jordanian military uh, was the one that recovered this, what, didn't he? Well, he he used the term Jordanian authorities. Okay. So we don't know if it was military. We don't know. And, and this could also be as easily explained as it was us that recovered it, but we were operating inside of a country that we had no business operating inside of. So therefore, we're going to give Jordan credit to completely avoid an international incident by admitting that we had spec ops inside of uh, Syria or wherever, you know. So just because it's, yeah, just, be, just because it's John Joyce talking to Congress, we can't prove that this is the actual truth. Yeah, it was black ops. We could never admit to it anyway. But exactly. the, the fact remains, we did have this object encased in a crate in the middle of the Jordan Desert. Yes. And and it was near, was it near a, a, a fixed military base or was it like a temporary, uh, temporary base that you were stationed at? So this is a little bit cloudy for me because again, this is, this is you know, 25 years ago. Um, and I was around 25 years old at the time. So what I can remember is the base that I was on, it was a Jordanian military base, mm-hmm. but it, looked abandoned. It looked decrepit. I mean, there was sand that had blown across the sidewalks and the roads and most of the, uh, actually all of the, uh, the base housing that I was able to see was empty. Uh, there wasn't anybody in it. Hell, there weren't even windows in, in half of the structures. So it looked as if it had been abandoned or never used, or it was in the process of being revitalized. But the position of this crate was so far away from the infrastructure of that base, so as it was, it was isolated. It was, it was completely cut off from, from the rest of the, the cantonment area. They probably knew it was irradiated. <laughs> they probably knew it was dangerous to, for humans to be near it. 
Uh, what was your shift? Uh, you were you out there multiple times or just one time? Oh no, I was out there for uh, uh, I don't know five or six nights. Uh-huh. And what was your uh, shift? Uh, how long were you out there each each night? Oh, I'd I'd work twelve hour shifts, and okay. it was basically from dusk to dawn. So, but they and they told you don't let anybody near it, don't touch it, don't go near it yourself. Yeah, you had a, like a specific area that you were not supposed to go within. Yeah, it was, it, well, there were, there were no cordons around the, the crate. There was no markings on the crate. It was just a giant wooden crate. Like I said, that you could, you could park a, a VW bug inside of. But you normally, you had orders to not go close to it, right? Or instructions ver- not to go close to it. Verbal only. And that was, that was one of the things that raised the hair on the back of my neck because any other time in my entire military career, when I would be put on post, we would have SOPs, special operating procedures or standardized operating procedures that would be in our guard shack or on our gate or in our patrol vehicle or in something that would tell us exactly what our zone of responsibility was, where we were supposed to go, what we were supposed to do, how we, would spo- how we were supposed to react to you know, certain, certain type of things. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing written down. And it was, I don't remember if it was a, a captain or a lieutenant or a colonel or whomever told me this, but he was the one that told me, you know, don't get near it. Don't let anybody else get near it. And of course, being 25 years old, I'm like, okay, so what happens if somebody gets near it? And he's like, shoot, shoot them. Yeah. And, and that is in, in guarding nukes, that is a standing order to shoot, to shoot, to uh, protect the, the asset at all costs. You know, you're absolutely right. And during my training in basic training and technical school, we would go through training operations and learn how to protect priority A resources. And one of the scenarios that we would be presented with is if a guy or a person was holding a child in their arms, but at the same time, they had a weapon that could cause damage to a priority A resource, like a B-52 bomber or an AWACS or a nuclear device itself, our standard operating procedures were to shoot through the child to take down that threat. So, and, and that to this day bothers the hell out of me. That's because you're human, man. Okay, you're, you're not a psychopath or a sociopath. You, you know, you care about human life. Yeah, and, and a guy with a gun is not going to detonate a nuke. Well, the, the point is, if, if somebody were to get control of that nuke and detonate it, he could do a lot more damage than the death of one child. No, you're, ab- you're absolutely right. Really, they, they can't teach you how to live with the consequences of your action. They can only tell you what you need to do in a situation. Right. And they're, they're saying that to do the exact same thing in the middle of the night in the Jordanian desert, and they're not going to do that over guidance control systems. I agree. I, I completely agree. And the fact that you had developed some strange form of skin cancer in an area that's never exposed to the sun, you know, unless you walk around microwaving hot pockets in your, in your yeah. <laughs> bathing suit, I mean, in your birthday suit. Yeah, no, no, it doesn't happen. So it's okay. So then that leads me to the next question: Is you were there for six days? Was the uh, object after after you 
finished your six days of guarding the object, was it then taken away and you never saw it again? I don't know. Wait. And, and by so, object, you mean the crate, correct? The crate, yes, the crate. So you, you did your six days of, of guard duty, and then you were never asked to go back out there again? Correct. Oh, okay. And you don't know if there were additional guard units sent out to protect it for a longer period of time? No. I, uh, I've, I've spent an inordinate amount of time over the past year or so talking to people, researching military operations, and doing all sorts of open source intel collection. And to summarize, it appears that the final dispensation of that crate was not back here in the United States. We did not bring it home. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not yet at a position either, either mentally or, or security-wise to, to say where I believe it ended up, but where it ended up, in my opinion, is is cause enough for me to be suspect of pretty much everything the government has ever done uh, that I thought was that I thought was done for the right reasons. Now I'm not saying that we're always the bad guy. I'm saying that yeah, we're hell, we're the best country on on the planet as far as I'm concerned. But previously, you know, I I pissed red, white, and blue. Now now I question why. Is it necessary? Do we need to do this? What is the outcomes? What are the ramifications? Who are we going to upset? You know, things like that. I, I, I want to understand the dynamics of everything that the United States goes into because I don't trust a lot of the decisions that we're making. I think a lot of people feel that way. And the more information that comes to light, the more that people are going to, um, to be sympathetic to, to that. So, what we don't realize as a society is that the people that protect our freedom sometimes have to make decisions similar to that situation you were talking about where you would have to shoot through a child to disable a bad guy to prevent him from doing worse harm. Those, those things are often on a, on a grander scale. Yes, exactly. And, and those, those decisions are, are very, rarely, if ever, publicly uh, brought to light. So people don't know, you know, the average person doesn't know the decisions that are being made sometimes on a daily basis to protect our freedoms. And if we did know that, who's to say that we wouldn't go along with that, you know, and agree with that decision. Okay. Yeah. We, you know what? Yeah, we can, we can accept that decision because it means that we still get to remain a free society, free and open society. And we, we get to continue to have a roof over our heads and feed our families. But there is a, there is a group within our society that would strongly vehemently oppose that decision and believe that no freedom is worth that kind of making that kind of choice. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at the history, I mean, when we dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan, it ended a war, 100% guaranteed. There is no question about it that that World War II stopped because we nuked Japan. But in retrospect, in hindsight, 
if you take humanity and look at humanity instead of looking at the United States, was that the right decision? We still have our country, we still have our way of life, but there was, we, we killed civilians. I'm not saying that that was the wrong thing to do. I'm questioning whether or not we should have done that or, we, or should we have won the war in conventional means. Okay, you're not the first person to ask that question. Many, many people have asked it. And you have to put yourself in the chair of Harry Truman at that time and realize the number of casualties that would have been uh, on both sides if we had gone in and, and done a, a ground assault in Japan. Oh, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. But so you, you, have, you have a choice. You know, and, the, human, and, and, the human being in me looks at the picture of the child that has, you know, third degree radiation burns and thinks that that child had no choice in any of this. Whereas the soldiers that are fighting each other, they had the choice, you know, and in, in a conventional war where you have gun pointed to gun, is that better or worse? even if the numbers are higher in deaths on both sides in a conventional war, is that better or worse than killing 140,000 civilians in an eighth of a second? Which, which one, which is the right answer? And I don't, I don't, I don't know. I agree. That answer is elusive. The, the only way you could make that decision is to be forced to make that choice. And the only person that was ever forced to make that choice was Truman. You know, and we know what the, the result of that was. Now, on, on the positive side, the U.S. did not just walk away after ending that war. We went in there with equipment, with people, with money, and rebuilt that country, which is yeah. exactly what should have been done. So You're, you're absolutely correct. And I think – and. I, I don't know if it was because we wanted to maintain control of Japan and we wanted to turn them into a productive uh, dependent of the United States, or was it because we had a guilty conscience and this was our way of providing reparations for a tremendously terrible act? Well, I think both reasons are equally legitimate. Because if, if we had just walked away, Soviet Union would have, would have came in and helped them out, and they would have been a subjugate of the Soviet Union. For sure. And we, you know, we absolutely cannot allow that to happen. Sure. Um, we, because we see the results of that in Vietnam and Korea. Um, you know, for us to walk away from it, this, you know, would have been, it would have been worse. Yeah, ge geopolitics is a is a messed up thing, man. Not to mention the strategic advantage that Japan had, you know, that would have given um, the Soviet Union. So, okay, so stepping back to what we were talking about, I, I don't want to push you to reveal your your the results of your research. Uh, it's interesting, and hopefully someday that'll be able to come to light. Um, what I would what I would like to to do though is if you don't mind you, you said that 
what you found out has given you a little bit of a pause about some of the decisions made by our government. Sure. What is it that, what, what theory has led you to that uh, conclusion? You think this nuke ended up somewhere and for some reason, can you say why? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll at least give you that much. Um, my, my personal belief based on the research that I have done is that we placed that nuke in an operational status inside of another country that would give us the ability to launch a first strike and blame Russia. So the first strike would be against one of our allies or possibly even the U.S. from another country that we could blame on Russia to start a third world war? Uh, blame on Russia because the uranium signature and the isotopic signature from that device was definitively a Russian nuclear device. And, and to what end? To start a third world war or a, an all-out nuclear war? I don't know if there was a reason. Okay. I think, I think that we stacked the deck and held on to a possibility. So in essence, well, I guess in, in what you're saying is to use that as a false flag attack against the U S or its allies. Or, or simply like, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, we we're anticipating a lot of sable saber rattling in, in the middle East that needed to be quelled very quickly. And if we dropped a nuke on Iraq, the world would have turned against us. But if Russia dropped a nuke on Iraq, even though we're the ones that launched it and navigated it and programmed its final destination, then the world rallies behind us. Hmm. Wow. That's a pretty... Uh, the, the word I am looking for, I have several words. I'm going to go with complex okay uh diabolical is the word that i was was originally thinking of using but complex that's a complex strategy and it's not one that i i think um it should be overlooked i i think that you are on something with that yeah it's i mean i've got i've got a ton of circumstantial evidence that points to that to that end game and pretty much identifies to my satisfaction where that device ended up, uh, under whose control it was, how it got there, when it got there. Um, what I haven't been able to put together is where is it now? Ah, that was, that was going to be my next question. What do you, what do you think is that thing still in play? I do not believe that it would still be in play today because in the 1990s, in the mid 1990s, sensor technology to be able to detect nuclear explosions was limited to NATO, which included Canada and the United States, and Canada depended on our uh, um, uh, telemetry and data, and uh, Israel, and obviously Russia and China. Now, nobody's going to believe Russia if we did what I think we were going to do, nobody would believe Russia, even if Russia published their sensor data. Uh, Israel would get their telemetry data and sensor data from us. 
So they're not a unique source of information. Uh, China wasn't quite there yet. They wouldn't be able to determine uh, isotopic signatures at that time. Now, now just about every country has the ability to determine uh, the, the radiation signature of a nuclear device to show what its origins were. So I don't believe that this scenario would be able to be conducted today. Okay. That's so, yeah, you say you've, you've uh, collected over the years, you've collected a mountain of evidence, circumstantial evidence, anecdotal evidence um, to support this theory, which is an interesting theory. Uh, uh, do you ever plan on publishing? Potentially. Um, not anytime soon. And what's and the, I, what's the hesitation to publish? I don't want to be disappeared, man. Plain and simple. I've got a, I've got a family, I've got a kid, I've got, uh, I, I want to wake up tomorrow and, and breathe air. Sometimes people on this podcast, guests that I have on this podcast say something that creates a disconnect in my brain that actually makes my brain stop working. And what you just said right now has done that. Um, how much of this do you actually want me to, to air on the podcast? Is there anything that you've said that you want me to retract? I would be happy to. Um, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, I think, I think I'm comfortable enough now to, to go with what I've said. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that says a lot because two things, the reason I said that is for twofold. One is I want you and the listeners of this podcast to know that if anything is said inadvertently, that the guest doesn't want to be put out there in the public, that I will respect that wish. Yeah. And secondly, it tells me how strongly you believe in what you've presented here today. Well, the other thing that I want you and your listeners to know is that I do maintain a secret security clearance. And I have run this scenario through my head multiple times in understanding why I have a secret security clearance and what I could and couldn't say that would jeopardize my employment and my possession of this security clearance. Under no circumstances would I ever divulge any information that I was given by official sources. Absolutely anything that I have said today has been put together by open source information collection. None of the information that I have has been given to me illegally. Have I received it illegally or have I disseminated it against uh, my, my oath or against my, uh, my security clearance? And if somebody came to me from the U.S. government today and provided me with the operational plans for a working nuclear device, that shit would get burnt and I wouldn't tell anybody that I ever had it. Uh, because I, I take that oath and that, 
that secrecy completely serious. Now, now that being said, that's important that you say that because that opens the door for other researchers to take what you said and take a similar path to what you have taken to discover these, this information and possibly come to the same conclusion. So the, the sources that you have, the, the information that you've come, um, uh, that you've uncovered. It can all is, be replicated. It's all available to the public to be able to, to find it themselves. Yeah, they'll, they'll have to put their own whiteboard with red string and, and look like a psychopath in their living room by post-it notes and twine, but they can replicate this. Now, is there, because um, I, I know that you're still searching for answers. Correct. Uh, is there anything that you can give listeners or potential researchers a hint of how they can start the, the journey to, to come to your conclusions? Look at the history. This, this is going to require them to take a deep dive into uh, the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Empire, and, and that time period in history. Look at which countries had heavy alliances or heavy reliances on the Soviet Empire prior to its crash. Look at which countries are free from the zone of, of, or the sphere of Soviet influence now. And look at which countries we are allied with that we were not allied with in the mid nineties. Oh, one other, one other key component to that search is look at the countries that had possession of nuclear weapons at that time. Not necessarily. Really? Yeah. Not in my opinion. Now, I could be wrong in that aspect. I, I, I could be wrong. So let, um, let, me, let me just throw out this scenario. Let's say uh, Turkmenistan is one of the, the countries that did have nuclear weapons. Okay. And uh, I, think, I think Kazakhstan also had one or uh, several. I think Ukraine and Belarus also had those. Okay, Lithuania is a country that had no nukes. But now they're they're a an ally of the West. They were formerly Soviet Union. Um they did not have nukes. So is are you saying that the that you're on the you're on the right track, but don't look at countries that were former Soviet Union. Look at countries that were inside of the sphere of Soviet influence. Oh, okay. Okay. So, <laughs> man, the sphere of Soviet influence was freaking huge <laughs> back in it, those days, man. It was, and and that's 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 why I'm comfortable in saying that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking at a map right now, and I'm seeing, um, you know, damn, Greece, Italy, Turkey. You know, somewhere, somewhere in the, maybe Turkey. Um, you don't have to confirm or deny. I'm just, I'm just throwing ideas out there for people to to think about. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, and I, and I totally respect your hesitation to to divulge any more than you already have. And I 100% appreciate you having the courage to come forward and share this information with people because it is important. People do need to understand. They need to understand, number one, that these things are possible. You're not the only person that could come up with this scenario. No, no, it's absolutely the only reason that I'm even mentioning it is because anybody, anybody through a dedication to research and reading between the lines and connecting dots, they can come to the same exact conclusion. And if, if a government official showed up tomorrow and presented me with a handbook that confirmed my suspicion, I would never mention it. I would never say that it happened. I would, because I am under a security clearance. Everything that I am saying is open source information collection from no official source. Now, if that folder or document was declassified and made public, then you could talk about this without any, um, without any hesitation or fear of repercussion. But that would have to be declassified first. It would, ha it would have to be declassified, and I'd probably consult with an attorney first. Mm. That would be smart. Yeah, that would be smart. Um, so this whole, this whole journey, which, you know, we kind of got off onto this, this topic earlier on, but this whole journey of you exploring and trying to figure out, you know, what this device was, uh, and where it ended up, this, this whole thing led you in a way to uh, uncover or explore another aspect of that encounter. And that was the, the UAP uh, portion of the, of the um, experience. And so my question is, and this is a tough one, where you're at now, which um, element of the experience to you holds more interest? Oh, for sure. So what I believe happened with the stuff that was in the crate, it pisses me off. But anger is not necessarily a, a tremendous motivation for me unless somebody does something against my family. Um, my curiosity right now has really, really been stoked with what everybody is calling the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I've already answered my own question about the contents of the crate and the dispensation of the crate. I, I don't have any answers on anything else. So until, until I showed up on that TV show and until I was interviewed by Lou Elizondo, I had never once in my life picked up a book on UFOs. Well, I take that back. I think I think when I was in high school, I may have read a book by Eric Von Daniken that had been written back in the 60s. But other than that, I never walked into the New Age section of a bookstore. I never picked up a book on UFOs. I didn't listen to UFO podcasts. I, I would fall asleep watching Ancient Aliens at 2 o'clock in the morning when there was nothing else on TV. And that was the extent of my trip down this rabbit hole. Uh, but now, because of my conversations with Lou, because of my introduction and conversations with people like Sean Cahill and, and the, 
the information that has been passed back and forth, the ideas and, and the potential scenarios, my brain is, is digging, digging down that rabbit hole now. So that holds a, a, a far greater interest and more, much more compelling to you than where that nuke ended up and uh, what it was potentially used for. Because yeah, you've already because, answered, you feel like you've got a, a strong answer to that equation. Yeah, not, not only okay. do I have a strong answer for it, it was never, it was my idea of what the nuke was being used for never came through to fruition. And I don't believe it ever can now. So as far as I'm concerned, that part of the story is closed and I don't particularly care about it anymore. Um, everything else that is occurring uh, really has my attention. I, this is something that I want to know. This is something that I want to know uh, what, who, where, when, why, how. Uh, and I'll share with you, I had a conversation with Lou. Oh God, it's been maybe six, eight weeks ago. And maybe, maybe even longer than that. But I was, I was texting back and forth with Lou and I simply asked him point blank. I was like, man, will I ever know what it was that I saw? referring to the, the UAP. And Lou tells me, you're going to live to see it. And it wasn't us. Uh, so it, it's interesting that, that Lou Elizondo will, um, will make a statement like that. And uh, that just, that just kind of speaks volumes as to how much more he really knows than what he's letting on in the public eye. Yeah, well, you know, he, he's very cautious with his words, and he's very careful with the words that he uses. And by him saying that I'm going to know and it wasn't us, that doesn't confirm anything. He, he may have meant it wasn't the United States, not that it wasn't humanity. Or he may have meant it wasn't the U.S. military. Uh, it, it, you know, he, what he said is open to so much interpretation that he cannot be held responsible for the ideas that are put in people's heads because of that statement. Well, the, the, the more intriguing to me, the more intriguing part of that statement is that you will know, you will have an answer to what it is. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's right there. I mean, when, <laughs> you know, that's my next question. When are we going to know? For sure. For sure. I, you know, and, and you, we, you touched on the idea that humanity is not going to fall apart when disclosure occurs. I do agree with you on that as a whole humanity will not. We talked about the heavens gate guys and things like that and what I don't want to be responsible for. But you know, the scientists just came out last week and said, Hey, we've, we've discovered life on Venus or we have discovered signs of life on Venus. I don't think anybody cared. Yeah. And right after that, Russia comes out and says, Venus is ours. That in my opinion, that was, to distract people that that was a big bully coming out and making a bold claim so that everybody looks over here when what's really what's really important and people need to pay attention to is in a different direction yeah yeah because did you see how many people got so irate and so angry by russia making that claim yeah of course. Nobody cared that there's potential life 
elsewhere in our solar system, they cared that Putin is claiming a planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody completely forgot about the fact that we've discovered signs of life on another planet. Yeah. Humanity is a, humanity is a cat standing on the top of a ping pong table in an active game. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, so yeah, your um, your journey is certainly a fascinating one, and uh, I, I would just like to ask you next: what is what do you think is the next phase of this journey? Oh man, um, or where would you like it to go? The next phase of this journey is you know how we're doing the privatization of space travel. We we really need. And I think TTSA is the first step in this. We need the same grassroots effort that the privatization of space travel is having with people like Elon Musk, but we need an Elon Musk in the civilian world to develop technologies, to push out sensor stacks, to give access to people equipment that is not cell phone cameras, you know, provide provide a way for the everyday Tom, Dick, and Harry to be able to have some sort of device that is able to capture potential telemetry so that everybody has access, everybody is an investigator, and everybody can have a standardized method of reporting on a technological basis what it is that is potentially out there. So we don't have uh, Samsung and Apple and Google and Huawei and all these other companies with different types of sensors and different type of cameras. Uh, and we have to analyze the data between all of those and say, okay, well, this camera sucks and this camera is okay, but it doesn't have this capability or whatever. Everybody has the same type of sensor stack available to them to be able to take these pictures and record the movements and look at potential EMF uh, uh, discrepancies. And, you know, if, if we had if we had a box that we all had access to and this box had sensors in it that historically speaking seem to be the right sensors to have in it, that's what we need. We need everybody to have access to the same type of data collection. Okay, there, there is a program that is open source, privately funded. Are you familiar with Bob McGuire? He's I am a, not. He's a scientist. Uh, recently retired from a university and he's involved in a program called Skyhub and they're developing, or I think they've already developed technology and a tracking database to collect that, that information. And these are individual units that people can purchase, hook up to a computer and record their piece of the night sky. And if the the uh, device, you know, I'm, I'm a layman when it comes to this stuff, so I'll probably use the wrong terminology. But sure. the device is supposed to record the night sky, identify anything that is um, that comes within that that frame uh, that it's recording, identify it, cross-reference it with known like satellites, air traffic, um, you know, any other anomalies, I guess, balloons that might be in the area, weather balloons and stuff like that. So it'll mm -hmm. cross-reference with all of that stuff. It's, it's not only recording video, it's also recording telemetry data. So it knows where it's at in the sky 
in relation yep. telemetry, to telemetry, multispectral yeah. imaging, everything. That, exactly. Yeah, that's, it I'm records all of that. It's called Skyhub. Go to skyhub.org and okay. uh, get in contact with Bob McGuire if you can. I don't know how available he is. He's a pretty busy guy. Um, he also is uh, working with um, the, there's a, there's a podcast called the mad scientist podcast. I think that's okay. what it's called. I, I have to look it up, but I've, I've uh, talked to this guy a couple of times, but his, his podcast is more science-based. Um, but he's also involved in the development of this technology. And then they collect all the data and the data is sent directly to a central hub and correlated and cataloged for people to study, for scientists to go in there and study the data and interesting. come up with conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting That'd program. I thought that they were um, trying to connect with uh, the dudes over at Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, Brandon Flugel. And, but yeah. Uh, Brandon Fru Fru uh, Fugel um, and, and his team. I, so I think they're going to plant some of these, um, these units out at Skinwalker Ranch, but uh, it'd be nice to see them connect with to the Stars Academy, also. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. And and Tom, if you're listening, uh, give give this guy a shout, man. Um, you know, you're you're talking about TTSA. There's there's one thing that I want to say. I would love to see someone like Adam Savage partner up with TTSA, and you know, Adam has this really amazing ability to build things, to build mechanical functioning things, right? So when, when a, a group like TTSA or anybody has a mass sighting or a mass viewing of an object, have somebody like Adam Savage try to reverse engineer a terrestrially designed uh, platform that would look, sound, move exactly like what people saw to try to debunk it so that we can filter some of the obvious hoaxes. Because as the more, more and more this becomes prolific and popular as an idea, a topic, and, and, a, and a word in, in the national uh, you know, tip of the tongue collective, the more people are going to be hoaxing these things. And to have somebody to try to recreate a potential hoax to prove it's a hoax, but if, if Adam is unable to build something that moves, looks, and sounds, or, or, or whatever, like what a thousand other people saw, then we can move that into a different pile. Right. Yeah. I think that, and that would make a hell of a show. <laughs> yeah. Myth, myth busters on UFOs. Yeah. There you go. Call it, call it hoax busters. The thing about the sky hub um, device is that the data doesn't go through anybody's hands. It goes directly to the hub. So there's no way to CGI manipulate the, the video or mm -hmm. to, to mess with the data before it goes directly to the database. It's uh, it's a closed uh, unit. So there's no way it can be tampered with, but you're right. Yeah. Those, those, uh, those kind of elaborate hoaxes that are out there, uh, uh, they're detrimental to the study of this topic. Uh, you know, this, um, th those people should just, stop doing that they're, they're doing it for attention but they're really hurting the entire subject the entire uh, area of interest in the uap phenomena 
Well, of course they are. And you have to ask yourself the question, as does everybody else, are these sponsored? Oh, man. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needs to put you uh, on the, the staff of the, um, like the, the people that come up with the worst case scenario, you know, a think tank that comes up with the worst case scenario. Right. Uh, right what, yeah, what's like... the worst thing that could possibly happen? <laughs> Hey, let's call that guy Jeremy McGowan, you know, the unidentified guy. <laughs> he yeah, comes I'll, up with I'll, some weird ideas. <laughs> I'll, I'll create a doomsday scenario for anything. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, shoot, if it is sponsored, what is the motivation? You know, why, well, why would these guys spend money on trying to hoax the public? It is highly likely that if we were ever to have a, for lack of a better word, an alien invasion, is that at the exact same time that we were being invaded by aliens, the government would put out a false flag about an alien invasion. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the catalyst for, for me asking that question. Let's take your scenario, for example. You witnessed this UAP in the, I mean, miles away from any civilization in the middle of the desert. Yes. How, how much money do you think it would cost to create that kind of an elaborate hoax and why? If, if, if that was a hoax, I mean, Oh what's, yeah. What's something, the point? For something like that, for something like that, I don't believe that that was a hoax. Uh, I'm not just saying it because I was the one that saw it, but exactly like what you're saying. The only reason that I saw that is I happened to have my head tilted in a very specific direction at a very specific time while wearing night vision goggles in the middle of a cloudless sky desert. You know, it was simple happenstance that I was able to see it and see it several times over. That is not something that you're going to hoax because the possibility of somebody actually being there to see it is virtually zero. But if you're the United States government and you're flying uh, extremely sensitive, extremely classified sensor tech that is designed to, well, let's just go back to the nuclear program. Let's, let's say that we do have a weather balloon that has a tremendous amount of sensor tech on it that is capable of detecting nuclear detonations in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, from foreign countries because, you know, it's measuring the isotope signature in the upper atmosphere, and it, and it happens to crash, it would be better to blame it on a UFO than to come out and say, we have the capability of spying on Russia from New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, since you brought up Roswell, uh, I have to say definitively, I believe Roswell was a crash of unknown origin and not something any of the other theories that the government has put forth. Oh, I have no doubt. I, I am personally convinced. And I will say, I will say with a hundred percent conviction, I have spoken with someone who has claimed to have held what they dubbed to be meta materials that were recovered from Roswell in their own hands. And I'm not talking about somebody that has said, hey, I know that this other guy did it. I talked to the person who claims to have held those materials in their hand. Um, so when I was talking about Roswell as a potential government cover-up, I'm just using that as an antidote saying that, that you know, the government would be 
better served by blaming it on aliens than they would by saying that they have the capability of spying on Russia from New Mexico. I wasn't saying that, that Roswell was, was a, didn't happen. So I, 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 am, I am on your side with this. I do believe that Roswell uh, was, was a crash. Uh, but again, I want to know. I want to know something that I don't think anybody else is, is bringing up is if there are crafts that are capable of traveling hundreds of thousands of light years and crossing our galaxy, what the hell makes them crash? <laughs> That's a good question. And, it, you know, I, I don't think that question is, it goes um, overlooked. I just think it's, there, there's no answer for it. So people kind of avoid that question. Like what makes them crash? Okay, but supposedly Roswell was a lightning strike. That's one theory that I've heard and I kind of, think that that's a possibility because I don't think anything we had at that time could have shot one down except for a nuke uh, but it would have to be attached to a missile and our missiles weren't up to to, to that capabilities at that time 47 yeah but we also didn't have a nuke we didn't have a nuke detonate at that time so you know I mean you you, you got to think that if if you are an alien civilization advanced enough to cross the galaxy travel thousands if not hundreds of thousands of light years you are going to design a craft that is not susceptible to emps from pulsars from you know gravitational distortions you you can't i cannot fathom that plain old earth-made electricity was able to down something that has the capability of getting here from wherever there is I, I almost want to say that that this this could have been one of the reverse engineered collaborative vehicles that we had been using for a while. No, I, I, I disagree with you on that, and I'll tell you why. The response of the of the Army Air Force at that time was almost a week later. They didn't even know about it. They didn't know that something had crashed in the desert of New Mexico until it was reported by that rancher, Mac Brazel. So if it was a, if it was a test by the military, they would have known about it, been on scene before that rancher even discovered it. That's fair. Going back to my previous statement, you know, I never went down the UFO rabbit hole until recently. So I don't know the histories or the backgrounds or you know, the interviews or the, the, the dates and times of things. I just know what's in common pop culture uh, understanding. So I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. That's, that's okay. And you know what? The more you look into it, the, the more you'll understand and the more you'll be able to uh, correctly disseminate the information, which I applaud you for that. Because you are starting to develop, you're starting to build a platform. And when people listen to what you have to say. You want to be able to give them the correct information. Yeah. Yeah. There's the only things that I put out that is supposition. I label as opinion, as supposition, as circumstantial. And to be honest with you, the vast majority of everything I say is circumstantial because I am not holding a zero point energy device in my living room to prove this existence. So, you know, everything is, is circumstantial evidence. Everything is, is, my ideas and thoughts that have been put together by listening and understanding and researching and, and kind of taking the first few steps down this hole. And 
there's there's something going on what it is i i don't know well i you know for sure curiosity is is a strong motivator i i can't say how much i appreciate you exploring this topic and um one thing i i wanted to uh just drill down on a little bit i asked you you know where where do you want this journey to go where do you want your personal journey with this topic to go next Man. I had a very similar conversation with Sean, uh, Sean Cahill. And I am not an enlightened person. I am not an enlightened consciousness. Um, I spent my, the majority of my adult life in the United States military pointing weapons at dangerous people. My brain tends to go in that same direction now. What I want to get out of this is I want to know where I point my weapon to keep my family safe. Are these things nefarious? Are they benevolent? Are some nefarious and others benevolent? And if so, I want to be able to identify the ones that I need to keep at bay. My, my motivation is the basic human one of personal survival. I want information to tell me what I need to do tomorrow. So what steps do you take to that end? I mean, anybody listening to this who has an interest in this topic would probably want those same answers. What steps to take? I, I, I would say based on your, um, determination and your ability to uncover elusive facts because of the story that you shared with me about the nuke. I would say that you are an above average researcher, whether you'd like to admit it or not. You're somebody that can do things that majority of people aren't going to be able to uncover. But if somebody was interested in, in, furthering this topic and getting closer to those answers, what could they do and what are you planning on doing to reach that goal? Remember the smoking man off the X-Files? Yeah. His, his trust no one statement. That's, that's exactly what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust no one. Um, I am not going to be spoon fed information well i'm not going to be spoon-fed conclusions i'm not going to take for granted uh, if we have disclosure tomorrow and the united states government in conjunction with canada and britain come out and say hey this is bob he's from you know zeta reticuli and he's our friend i am not going to believe it i am not going to believe it until bob proves with his actions exactly that he is our friend um, do your own research, dig your own holes for, for firmly planting your feet in. Take, take a stand on what it is that you want to achieve. And if that achievement is enlightenment, plant your feet and point your head in the direction that you think it's going to take you. If that, 
if that objective is survival, plant your feet and take action on what you believe is going to guarantee you survival. Um, that's the best answer I have because I don't know what we're going to be faced with. Uh, I have two responses to that statement. First of all, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a video that surfaced, I think in the fifties or it was recorded in the fifties supposedly. And it's, it's an image. It's a video of a live alien and his name was skinny Bob. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I had it. Yeah. I didn't think you, I didn't think you had known about that, but when you said this is Bob and he's an alien, (laughs) that exact same scenario has already played out. Uh, it was, it was believed to be a hoax, but it looks so authentic, man. It looks real. Um, the other thing uh, that I wanted to say on a more serious note is that's, that's great advice. Don't take any answer, uh, you know, for gospel. Find your own answers and question those answers and keep digging. Yeah. What's, the, what's the first step somebody should take? Where, where could they go or who could they talk to, to, to get a, you know, to get started on this journey? Uh, but aside from reading books, there's a ton of books out there. And some of those books are really, really good places to start. Um, I've recommended a couple of those books in previous podcasts, but um, you know, aside from watching videos, movies, documentaries and things like that what's a good place to start where do you plan on going next what are you going to do next i'm going to try to get inside my own head um i'm going to try to validate whether or not my assumption that i need to determine where to point my weapon is the correct uh, the correct assumption and to do that i need to take a deep dive inside uh and figure out figure out me first. And I think that this goes back to the idea of uh, human con- or humanity's singular consciousness. And I want to experiment with that idea, see if it works for me and see if it opens up any other doors that I want to travel through. And if it doesn't, then I'm straight back to the idea of nuts and bolts and good and bad. Uh, if it does open up a few doors for me, I'm I'm going to pick one of the three and, and walk into it and see what happens. And I know that that is vague as hell, but that's the best answer I got. No, that's not vague at all. I think that's a legitimate answer. And I think that everybody needs to do some soul searching before embarking on a serious uh, exploration of this topic. You know, you need to know where you're at firmly on this planet and be grounded like um you you can't just go off half cocked and listen to whoever has claims they have the answer or you're going to end up like that heaven's gate cult exactly you know where you got people that are just believing blindly in some lunatic um so yeah you you i think that that's great um suggestion for anybody is to get grounded and do some retrospective or introspective uh, soul soul searching. Uh, do you uh, do you um, do you do use uh, 
meditation? Are you practicing meditation now? No, no. I've tried in the past. Uh, my brain is, is a jumbled mess of short-circuited neurons, and I cannot get it to shut up. Anytime I try to meditate, every intrusive thought that you could possibly imagine uh, forces its way in and says hi and jumps up and down on my prefrontal cortex and demands attention. So I have the same problem. Yeah. I am trying to learn how to meditate. And the very first step in that is literally understanding what meditation is. And I'm coming to the conclusion that it's actually not clearing your mind of all thought, but it's allowing yourself to follow your mind and allow it to lead you where it wants you to go. Wow. You know, it, to me, it's, it, it seems like such a refreshing thought to be able to, you know, you don't have to wipe away all thought. You just have to choose a thought to follow. And yeah, let one come to the surface and let it be the current that, that pushes. That's good. Pushes your journey. Who, who suggested that to you? Or does that something you came up on your it, own? You know, nobody suggested that to me. People have said things, and I'll, I'll give Sean Cahill credit again. He told me one of his favorite mental exercises was to picture a series of doors. And behind each door is a thought or an idea. And depending on which door you open and which thought or idea presents itself, that's the journey that you take during that meditation session. And so I, I took that and I took a, a few other things and and I just kind of developed the idea that meditation is not the clearing of your mind, but it is the idea that you're going to allow your mind to lead you down a path. And what is at the end of that path is completely unknown. And you don't even know if there is an end to that path. And you won't know until you allow your brain, your mind, I should say, to, to take you on that journey. Have you ever tried regressive hypnosis to go back and revisit that incident that you were, you shared with us or with me? No, no, I, I don't believe, uh, I'm not going to say that I don't believe in hypnosis. I don't believe in the sanctity of the information that you get from hypnosis because of the ability to plant information or to guide the mind during hypnosis. So I don't think that the result is, definitively quantitative in, in its result. Uh -huh. All I would say to that is before you rest on that assumption, talk to more people because there are, there are trained hypnosis hypnotists who prescribe to a much more rigorous method to protect that information from being contaminated. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I believe that there are, there are, um, hypnotists that that can extract uh viable information from from people uh you just not all of them are trained well enough to do it so you, you know if, all i'm saying is before you maintain that conclusion uh just talk to, to some other people Absolutely. Absolutely. Always, always keep an open mind. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Keep an open mind. 
do do more research don't rest on one conclusion based on you know a limited pool of data uh for sure i've i've actually tried to allow myself to be hypnotized before uh i had a friend who was a amazing hypnotist he could hypnotize i've i saw him do it he hypnotized our waitress at a restaurant one day <laughs> freaking blew me away but i i asked him to hypnotize me a couple times and he never could i i would never allow my mind to to be um calm enough to go under hypnosis and i i don't know it he told me that everybody could be hypnotized. Anybody could be hypnotized. I'm not saying that I can't be. I'm just saying that so far my experience with hypnosis has been unable to to complete the task. Yeah, I've, I've never tried. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, and it's been fascinating talking to you. I, I want to ask you, is there anything else that you feel like we may have left on the table and could come back to it at a later time or is there anything else you'd like to talk about right now man you're you're absolutely right we th i think this is the longest podcast interview i've done but it hasn't felt like the longest it it's been it's been very very entertaining for me i, I greatly appreciate the amount of time that you've dedicated to this um the more that the more that I dig into the idea of the phenomenon UAPs and things like that, you know, the more open I'm becoming to the ideas of of the woo woo, as uh, as Sean puts it. And I don't know if I'm ready to really discuss those a lot in detail yet because I haven't really formed my own opinions of it. But given time, I would certainly uh, appreciate the ability to come back and, and potentially discuss some more of the, uh, the more obscured information or esoteric ideas that, uh, that are coming forth that deal with the, uh, the phenomenon. I, I understand your podcast is not specifically to that, but, uh, but if you ever wanted to take a dive down that hole, I'd be, uh, be more than open to that. Well, what you got going on next weekend, man? Cause, uh, <laughs> this topic, <laughs> this topic is so interesting to me. Uh, you know, my podcast is, Cold War centric, but that's a huge spectrum, and uh, I I'm not afraid to go off topic because I, this podcast for me is an outlet, and if anybody wants to listen to it, they're more than welcome to to join in the journey. But mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not going to pigeonhole myself into one focused uh, subject and not explore other avenues that come my way. Well, we could certainly talk about the ideas that the CIA had back in the uh, the 60s and 70s and even through the 80s with the Majestic 12 and the remote viewers and and all of that. Which MK is, Ultra. Yeah, there you go. Yes, I I do have future plans to go down those those rabbit holes. And uh, yeah, if you if you want to um, come on board as as the guest host for those topics, man, the door's open. You know, all exactly. I need to know from you is your uh, focus of interest and um, and uh, your availability, and we could we could schedule it ASAP. Sounds great. Let's do it. Cool. Uh, so, if any of the listeners would be would like to get in contact with you, are you open to 
anybody to to get in to reach out and, and ask you questions or further the yeah, conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I actually created a Twitter profile that is outside of my normal persona, and I created it uh, specifically for my appearance on the uh, the Unidentified Show, and uh, it's it's at Jeremy J E R E M Y, and it's U N I D E N T I one at Jeremy Unidenti one is my Twitter handle. And you can, you can find me there and they can, uh, they can send me a, a DM or, or tag me in a comment on Twitter. Cool. Cool. And uh, do you have an email address? Uh, af- after I talk to them on Twitter a little bit and make sure that they're not uh, drinking too much Kool-Aid then uh, then I'll, I'll give them my direct email. For okay, that. cool. Right on. So, Twitter's the best way to reach reach you. Uh, do you have any? Um, a lot of people that I talk to are uh, artists, writers, um, people that are working on some kind of a project that they want to uh, give a shout out to. Is there anything in in your funnel or that you're working on that you'd like to let people know about? You know, I've been considering uh, writing a book, but I don't know how. I I would sit down. It's kind of like the meditation experiment. I try to sit down and, and focus myself into, you know, something past. It was a dark and stormy night as the first sentence, and I just can't get past it. So I don't know if there would be anybody that uh, that wants to collaborate on on that or or not. But I'm open to ideas. Okay. Well, there's a lot of uh, writers that do listen to the podcast. Well. Uh, there might be one or two writers that listen to the podcast. <laughs> uh, um, and if any of them are interested in contacting you, you're definitely open for that. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. Uh, well, I, I mean, if if there's nothing else that you, that you want to get off your chest at this moment, I think this is a great place to end this episode. Absolutely. Uh, Andrew, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I greatly appreciate the time that you've given me for this and, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the response from your listeners and to see what their feedback is. Cool. And for me, uh, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege and I absolutely grateful that uh, you and I have started to form a friendship and living in the same town. Uh, hopefully we can get together face-to-face, uh, uh, you know, in the near future when this COVID thing blows over. Yeah, yeah. We need to take our vehicles and do some overlanding through the desert. Man. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been wanting to do that. Now the weather's starting to cool off. We could certainly uh, plan on a couple of outings, evening outings, and do some night sky watching. For sure. For That'd sure. be fun. All right, Jeremy. Well, it's been great having you on. I look forward to having you on next week. <laughs> <laughs> in the future absolutely, absolutely. Uh, until then man have a great time yeah you as well thank you again all right talk to you later uh-huh. bye bye dead hand radio is a podcast about the cold war its history and the effects it had on our culture technology and the future of our world my goal is to examine these and other topics to learn to educate to entertain and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. 
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>